Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We talk college hoops. We also get into some pop culture, too. We always have a good time. He is Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram, and it is great to have you with us. What's going on, man? Man, I'm just uh, excited because usually when uh, January starts to turn toward the end and, and February gets here, the games get intense, and I think we saw some examples of that last night. We sure did. We're going to talk about a couple of the big games that uh, happened on Tuesday night in a moment. Uh, we should mention that Dane Bradshaw is going to join us shortly, SEC Network analyst, a former Tennessee player, so looking forward to visiting with Dane, one of the nice guys in the business, so he'll be coming up shortly. No uh, new rankings and the new Joe Lenardi bracket are out. That's at ESPN.com. Auburn moved into the top overall seed in Lenardi's bracket. Uh, SEC well represented there. Texas A&M, the first team out. Florida, the last team in. Mississippi State among the last four in. Uh, SEC has seven teams in the newest bracket. But it, it's hard to argue w- with Auburn as the uh, number one seed or close to it anyway. They're playing about as well as anybody in the country right now. They really are. I mean, if you think about it, their only loss was to UConn in double overtime. Uh, ESPN rated that the best game of the year so far. And since that time, they've reeled off 15 or 16, whatever it is. What's amazing to me is not Jabari Smith or Walker Kessler, the, the people that you automatically think about. This kid, Wendell Green Jr., from he, he transfers from Eastern Kentucky. He's 5'11". He's from the Detroit area, was largely overlooked, uh, well, overlooked by Big Ten schools. And he has a chip on his shoulder the size of the state of Alabama. <laughs> uh, and, he, and he plays like it. And, and he's tough. He's just reminiscent of those kind of undersized guards uh, dating back to Chris Lofton at, at, at Tennessee that Bruce Pearl just gives freedom and 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 confidence and I just love that kid watching him play and I I think he's been a huge and maybe underrated factor to their success he has transferred up and his stats haven't suffered at all in fact they've gotten better top seeds in Lenardi's bracket Auburn Gonzaga Baylor and Arizona the twos are Kansas UCLA Duke and Purdue Kentucky is up to a three to go with Wisconsin Illinois and Villanova Uh, Kentucky also up to number 12 in both polls Auburn is number two the Wildcats are also playing great. John Calipari's team beat Tennessee 107-79 to at home on Saturday. That was stunning to watch. And that was as much about Kentucky playing great as it was about anything Tennessee did. And then you're going to have a big showdown coming up this weekend. Kentucky visits Auburn on Saturday. That, that So far in the SEC anyway, that, that's one of the big showdown games that uh, we've seen in conference play. Yeah, I, it's going to be interesting because, uh, as you said, Kentucky – in that Tennessee game, it, it, it looked like they were in, in shooting practice. I have never – I cannot recall – I mean, I'm sure I've seen it somewhere along the line, <laughs> but I cannot recall. It seemed like everything they threw up went in. It, it, it was just amazing. And Tennessee is – you know, at that time was ranked, I think, number three in, in defensive efficiency in Ken Palm. And after that game, they fell to number five. They, they just got riddled, and you're right. I, I think it was as much to do with Kentucky just being great, and they've got severe Wheeler back. He hurt his neck running into a pick. It's like little help, guys. Somebody <laughs> call the pick out. <laughs> right. But he, he's okay again, and, you know, he's the most prolific assist maker in college basketball. And the other thing he's really done, 
last year at Georgia, he averaged four turnovers and now he's cut that way, way down. And his assisted turnover ratio is somewhere around two and a half. So that's as, as good as you, you could ask for from a point guard. Yeah. And I thought when Kellen Grady hit those threes back to back in the first half, I'm like, man, there's something going on here in this game. Kentucky shot like 79% in the first half. And I think it was 68% for the game. So uh, they've really been playing well. and, And again, they will face Auburn this weekend down on the plains. Gonzaga back up to number one in both polls. Uh, the AP has Auburn second, then Arizona, Purdue, Baylor, and Duke. Uh, Chris, a, a quick thought on Baylor. Uh, they beat West Virginia last night, so maybe uh, getting things back on the rails after back-to-back home losses to Texas Tech and Oklahoma State. They they never lose in Waco. They never do, and and an AP number one team has never lost two home games in a week in history. So that was crazy. Uh, they were without their six-man Jeremy Sohan, and of course their point guard uh, James Akinjo had, had sprained his knee and is still out. Both those two missed the game at West Virginia. But the big thing about Baylor, they had not been playing the defense to which uh, you know their fans have seen them play over the many years. Scott Drew has been there. They go to West Virginia, and w- without those two guys, as I said. They held the Mountaineers to 39% shooting and come away with the win. And uh, Yeah, if they'd have lost three in a row, I, I just that would have just shown you how topsy-turvy things are in college basketball. But, uh, yeah, I think they're back on the rails, and when they get a Kinjo and Sohan back, they'll, they'll be pretty formidable. Some really exciting finishes in college hoops on Tuesday night, including the Florida State-Duke game. Uh, FSU won at 79-78 in overtime. There were four lead changes, as I count them, in the last minute plus of overtime. I, I was working uh, Vanderbilt's game with Tennessee. Give me a thought or two on that one and, and how Florida State was able to get the job done. You know what? Uh, it's unprecedented, uncanny ability to win in overtime. Florida State has won 13 OT games in a row. That's remarkable. That's an NCAA <laughs> record. Uh, <laughs> Here, here's what I think it is, my theory. Leonard Hamilton, who we'll talk about uh, later when we mention the, the late, great Joby Hall, Leonard Hamilton always plays depth, always uses his depth. Uh, right now they've got 10 players averaging between 11 minutes and, and about 29 minutes. So what I think is the reason that they're always tough in overtime is because that depth, just wears down their opponents. I, I, I can think of no other reason. So that was a thriller there. There was one here in Nashville, Vanderbilt and Tennessee meeting for the first time in 2022. Tennessee came away with a 68-60 win. Vanderbilt was down by eight with less than four minutes to go and then put together a little rally and uh, got the game even at 60. Three-pointers by Trey Thomas and then Scotty Pippen Jr. made a tough one to tie the game at 60. Euros Plavchic scored a bucket with less than a minute to push Tennessee ahead to make it 62-60. And for Vanderbilt, you're, you're right there in the game. You're right there on the doorstep with a chance. Then a, a costly turnover on an inbounds play. Zakai Ziegler made a nice play to get the ball, and Tennessee was able to ice the game with free throws. They scored the last eight points of the game. It was a tough one to take for Vanderbilt and for Tennessee. Uh, they probably just felt like however they had to get a win after what happened at Kentucky, they will take it and move on. Yeah, I mean, any any road win in any conference is golden, and Tennessee desperately needed to get back on track. I'll tell you, this Euroslavsic guy, the seven-footer, I mean, to quote my buddy Sonny Smith, the former Auburn coach, 
for three years, he couldn't play dead in a cowboy show. Uh, and, and now they finally got him doing what they need him to do. And that is at seven, one, two fifty, or whatever he is, you know, there's a couple of things they want you to do offensively. They want you to rebound. They want you to, to defend, set screens, and maybe even become a little bit of a high post passer. And he, he did all those things. And I wouldn't say he careered out against Fandy. I think he had 16 at Mississippi State a few years ago, which was an aberration at the time. But he's going to be starting as long as John Fulkerson is in his funk. And he didn't show any signs of emerging from it last night. And Plauschitz was huge. He had some offensive rebounds and stickbacks that I guess that the one that made it 62-60. Yeah, yep. Uh, that were just huge, huge plays. Yeah, he was six out of seven, had seven rebounds. And those type plays really was where he was most effective, getting getting rebounds and putbacks. And, yeah, that, that was a big bucket down the stretch there. And I, I was really impressed with Ziegler. Uh, he's only 5'9", but in some ways he was one of the, the most impactful players on the court with the steals he made, the free throws he made. He scored all 11 of his points at the free throw line. He was 11 out of 12. Uh, Vanderbilt got a really nice performance once again from Jordan Wright, who was great at Georgia. He had a bad game against Kentucky uh, last Tuesday when they played at home, and then he went to Georgia and, and maybe turned his season around. He had like 20 points and 12 rebounds and six assists and three steals, and he backed that up with a 15.5 rebound, three assist game last night. So, you know, for Vanderbilt, they've they've just been looking for that additional scoring to go with Scottie Pippen Jr. and Jordan Wright, who's one of the veterans on the team. Uh, it looks like he's a headed in a really positive direction right now but for Vanderbilt it's been tough it's been kind of a strange season they, they've really played their best games on the road they have four true road wins including two in the SEC and then they have I, I think it's now five home losses 0-3 in SEC play at Memorial Gym so you know usually you want to hold hold serve at home and then uh, try to do the best you can on the road especially in a tough league like the SEC and now uh, you got two road games coming up at Florida and South Carolina Vanderbilt's 2 and 3 in the league and Tennessee is 3 and 3 after last night's result. Yeah, you know it's funny uh, Vanderbilt has has uh, uh prevented students from coming to the games until I, I guess later this month and I think that's taken away a, a big advantage in the home court. Uh, I didn't go to the game last night, but ESPN or SEC Network showed the student section was populated with a bunch of people wearing orange. Right. Yeah. You know, that sort of negates the home thing. But, yeah, I mean, I think Coach Stackhouse has got Vanderbilt playing pretty good basketball on both ends of the court. Rick Barnes always comments about how, how good of stuff they run offensively. And I thought they really bothered Tennessee defensively, too. Uh, Tennessee just struggles to score. It's it's painful to watch. I was joking with Rick Barnes the other day. He's not going to have a hair on his head uh, <laughs> if, if the ball doesn't start going in the hole a little more regularly for those guys. Yeah, Vanderbilt has made a big jump defensively from last season to this season, and both those teams are good defensive teams that we saw here in Nashville last night. Vanderbilt committed 21 turnovers, and Tennessee turned those into 19 points. Tennessee, 14 turnovers, but Vanderbilt was only able to turn those into nine points. And points off turnovers has really been big for Vanderbilt this season. It was in the a win at Georgia back on Saturday where Vanderbilt was down by double figures in the first half and then came roaring out of the break and uh, really played great. That was probably a, the best half they played the whole season in Athens back on Saturday. So, yeah, we'll see as uh, Vanderbilt goes on the road and Tennessee goes back home to uh, play LSU. Chris, our, our guest is here. He is Dane Bradshaw. You can see his excellent work on the SEC Network. Of course, a former Tennessee player. Dane, what's going on? Long time no see. 
Uh, I know it. Yeah, it's uh, man, just excited to to be in the thick of things here in SEC play. I'm a football fan like everybody else, but uh, it, it, this is this is my passion, like you guys, college hoops, and it's it's fun to uh, be covering an exciting league right now in the SEC. I was going to ask you about that, DB. Um, you know, last year and, and even to some degree this year, uh, you've called games from from your basement office or whatever, but but you're actually back out into the field. How does that feel to get back out there and just kind of experience things? I think it's something you you, you take for granted, and you know, it is what it is in terms of how we had to call games remotely last year. Um, but you kind of got used to it too. And there were some conveniences there without, you know, rushing to the Atlanta airport, trying to make a flight or catching the 5 a.m., you know, and, and all that stuff. So look, there, there are some conveniences, but you got a little bit used to it and you, you just kind of got through the game. And, um, but then after you, you have a few now back on site, you realize, man, you know, we can do so much better of a job right here. Yeah. Um, and just, just feeling the, you know, the energy in the stadium, um, picking up on things and not just totally relying on the on the broadcast feed, being able to use your own eyes and see, hey, you know, what's coach saying to the guy over here or why is he pulling this guy out or or some of the trash talk stuff. And so th- there's a lot of things that, that come that come with with being on site, which, um, you know, it's is certainly stating the obvious that, yeah, you can do a better job, bring more of the broadcast if you're there. Um but uh, I think everybody's done their best job with with using technology to to pull off last season and balance this one as well. Um, and, and last night w- was fun, even though you know we were up in a suite at Vanderbilt. They don't have us on the court, so that was a little bit more difficult because you're it, you're 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 there, but you're not as close to the action. So it, it was a little bit of a hybrid. Dana, about last night's game, give me a thought or two. It was two really good defensive teams. Came down to the end, a big turnover for Vanderbilt after the Commodores had rallied from eight down. And Tennessee did a good job of icing the game from the free throw line. What did you see? Yeah, it's just uh, the, the turnovers for Vanderbilt. The, they had, I think, eight in the first half. And I'm sure Coach Stackhouse said, guys, we can't have 16 16- plus turnovers in this game and they they turned it over 13 times in the second half for a total of 21 and just just too many and you look at that last one it's Tennessee wasn't even set up in a press Zakai Ziegler just decides kind of on his own let me let me pressure the ball here um make it difficult on the inbounds pass and look good play by Ziegler give him a ton of credit for for making the clutch defensive play but that's also one where you just got to find a way for your Vanderbilt to get the ball inbounds because there's enough turnovers and steals that are going to be had for Tennessee in the half court set. That's where they, they bother people is, is in the half court with their positioning. Uh, They guard the ball well, but of all places, that's where that turnover just just can't happen um, for Vanderbilt. And uh, I thought they did do a good job despite not shooting well, uh, did Vanderbilt teams go into the game saying we can't let them get to the free throw line. We can't let Pippen, get the easy ones and he still found a way to get you know 10 points from the free throw line um but i thought tennessee did a really nice job offsetting that uh, they were 25 of 29 and, and actually ended up winning the free throw battle considerably so that was inflated towards the end but uh even when tennessee couldn't keep them off the line vanderbilt was was typically sending uh tennessee to the stripe as well 
Dane, before you joined us, we were talking about Auburn, which has ascended to the number one uh, line on Joey Brackett's seed and number two in the polls. You played for Bruce Pearl for a couple of years. What is his particular genius? Uh, it seems like not last year, notwithstanding, it just seems like he's always got whatever kind of team he puts together. They're always competitive. What, what is his particular genius as a coach? Well, he's made some adjustments over the years. They don't press as much as they used to. They, they don't rely on turning people over um, to, you know, um, get their defensive stops. Now they've got rim protectors down low and the, the a lot of it, their talent level is so high. I mean, he's running the same stuff. I had a Zoom call with, with he and uh, Jabari Smith before their Ole Miss game, and I joked with Jabari Smith. I was like, hey, that, that four-up play call, believe it or not, Bruce used to call the same thing for me. I think he's going to have a lot better luck <laughs> calling it for Jabari Smith. So, you know, it, I mean, yeah. it's, so, you know, I don't want to overcomplicate the analysis. Yeah, look, when you're calling it for Jabari Smith, or Dane Bradshaw, you're probably going to be looking a little bit better. And hey, it worked I plenty mean, of times for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I, I think one thing Bruce has done too, though, and you saw it some at, at Tennessee, Chris, um, I thought early on he recruited some of the best players he could get rather than the best players that fit. Right. Um, and right now you're seeing, you know, whether he's getting a kid from College of Charleston, Eastern Kentucky with a window green. I mean, it's about kind of those small, feisty guards that uh, as opposed to just, yes, you get the Jabari Smith in there, the five-star, one-and-done type kid. But there's some of those kind of mid-major overlooked guys that to me – is the core and the DNA of, of a Bruce Pearl system. And so I think he's recruited to a system extremely well, uh, increase the talent where he can without, you know, without putting too much emphasis on most talented, sexiest athlete out there and keeping that balance between um, what they're trying to do offensively, defensively, and, and who's the right fit. You know, it, it, it reminds me of the game in Nashville when – you were at Tennessee, and I think you had a shoulder injury. You played Oklahoma State, and if I'm not mistaken, you tipped it in for the win. Uh, bad shoulder and all. And Bruce was walking to the bus after the game, and he saw me, and he said, what do you think of that one, man? And I said, Coach, I love college basketball. <laughs> and he said, I, I know you do, man. But, uh, you know, you kind of epitomized, I think, uh, what what he's all about I, I mean he uses what he's got to great effect you were a point guard he converged into a four man and i mean you you became etched into tennessee lore well <laughs> because he, of that. i appreciate that and i had some great moments and he he is he um you know he runs that flex offense that people see and look early on when he took over the auburn job it had been a, you know, a couple years after he had the, sh the show cause deal and it was like you know I don't know if this flex is going to work like it did at Tennessee. And there, there was some doubt there over a couple of years. And, uh, and look, myself included, you know, he, he didn't have the same staff he had at Tennessee. Um, you know, the, the offense and the, the tempo, those things weren't happening nearly as quickly. Um, the cover was much more bare at Auburn than it was Tennessee, but that didn't change people's expectations of, 
wait, I thought you were the guy that can turn it around in year one, you know? And so <laughs> over time he, he got the guys in there, he stuck with his system. Um, but even, even the, the star Jabari Smith, just because I've had the benefit of, of playing for him, I, I see these play calls where Jabari Smith might look like he had a great one-on-one individual play and he did, but there's spacing and strategy that all happened before Jabari Smith ever caught the ball on some of those, you know, 18 foot post ups and jump shots and those sort of things that um, I don't think he, he gets uh, enough credit for. And so, um, yeah, he, he's, he's a brilliant, I, I, he used to get a ton of attention and still does as a great marketer PR guy. And you felt like, man, is he getting enough credit for his X's and O's? And now I don't think that's anything people can, can overlook. I mean, he, he's so good on, on that end of it. And um man what a staff we had when you think about uh the benefit i had of playing for a guy like that uh jason shea who's who's now on the staff with uh, steve forbes who was on that staff at at wake forest they're doing great things in the acc and you look back man we had a monster staff at tennessee and that'll help you win you some ball games auburn and kentucky play on saturday and uh, dane i don't know that any team in the country helped its roster more than kentucky with the transfers that, that they added uh most notably oscar shibway severe wheeler kellen grady and, and ty ty washington the freshman uh, uh give me a thought or two on that game and and really just how kentucky has has made itself into one of the better teams in the country now yeah the, the resume maybe isn't as impressive as as auburn and with uh, Kentucky having already lost at LSU, even though that's when Wheeler got hurt. But anybody that's followed Kentucky over the past month realizes, hey, they are playing every bit as good as Auburn is. I mean, they are equally impressive. Um, that doesn't mean I think they should be ranked number number one or two. But the, you know, when you see the eye test, I mean, they're shooting it extremely well. Their point guard play, they're healthy. Sheboy is an absolute monster on the board. He's the greatest rebounder I've ever seen. And maybe in college basketball, certainly in the SEC. Um, but uh, to me, uh, the, the the X factor is if I'm John Calipari, I really wanted Auburn to be ranked number one in the AP poll this week. <laughs> you know, you, you want to be like, hey, let's go take down the number one team. Yeah. But if I'm Bruce Pearl, I'm like, yes, let me go <laughs> tell our team, hey, nobody respects you. We're going to have to do it like we always have. we got to go out and take it. CBS we got to take down a blue blood. If you want to be number one, you got to go show the effing world. You know, I mean, that's yeah. going to be, that's, I mean, that's what it's going to be. And, uh, and so it's something, because I really thought that that is, I mean, it's a factor for me. I thought if, if Auburn was ranked number one, I felt like, all right, I don't know that it's going to last past Saturday. But with this extra little chip of that, that Bruce is so good at, at, getting his guys to have that extra motivation and of course the home court advantage i'm starting to lean towards all right maybe maybe kentucky doesn't pull off the road win but uh very well could be one of the best games in the sec all season dane is this dating back to your days as a player and then once you joined our ranks with the media i think it was 2014 uh is this the deepest you've seen the sec you know i'd really i hate to to say that year in year out but I, I do think my mind's changed a little bit um over the past few weeks I, I thought the league was top heavy and I thought you had maybe four or five teams that could win the league um I don't think that's the case anymore it's Auburn's or Kentucky's and, and I also thought hey after you get past six seven teams there's there's not much you know worth uh following 
but you get some surprise teams like Texas A&M in there. Mississippi State, I think, is going to have themselves in the picture. But then just the roller coaster of college basketball, you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought Arkansas and Florida were definitely NCAA tournament teams, and now they're kind of on the bubble. So um, I can say this. I I, I think it's um, Kentucky and Auburn in terms of that elite status across the country in Final Four uh, type contenders that, that – that separates this season probably more so than other seasons. Um, but where it was, when you mentioned 2014, I remember coming on the SEC network and it was so drastically different from not to be like, Hey, back when I was playing, but back when I was playing, you were getting those five, 16 teams, yeah. five to six teams every year. And that was without Missouri and A&M in the conference. And you, then all of a sudden you saw just the, the rock bottom for the league where, um, all you could cover on the SEC network was Kentucky. And you could never, if you were a team trying to build a resume, if you didn't get it done in non-conference, your quality win opportunities were Kentucky and Florida. And if you didn't win those games, then all you were doing was trying to avoid bad losses. I mean, and that that's a generalization, but for the most part, whereas now, hey, it's not the, if you didn't have the greatest non-conference, don't worry. SEC plays coming. Your strength of schedule will go through the roof. Your quality win opportunities are going to be there. Um, and so that's something that's been consistent over the past few years. So I, I not dodging your question. I don't know that I can say this is the deepest, but even though they're deep this year, it make the, the compliment is it makes you wonder like, well, I don't know if it is or not. Cause it's been, it's been pretty dang deep the past three or four years. So. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how things go here in these uh, last few weeks of conference play. Dane Bradshaw, always a pleasure to have you on with us and uh, hope to catch up with you again down the road. Anytime guys. Thank you. That was Dane Bradshaw from the SEC Network, just one of the great guys, uh, former Tennessee players who talked about play for Bruce Pearl uh, during his time at Tennessee, and these days does a a great job as an analyst for the SEC Network. Crossed paths with him a couple times. Uh, He did Vanderbilt's game at Arkansas a couple weeks ago, and then saw him here in Nashville last night for Vanderbilt and Tennessee. Some really good matchups coming up this weekend, and a lot of them in the Big 12. West Virginia at Texas Tech, Oklahoma State at Texas, Baylor plays at Oklahoma, TCU at Iowa State. Uh, In the Big Ten on Friday night, you're going to get Michigan State at Wisconsin. That will be a good one. Uh, We talked about Kentucky and Auburn coming up on Saturday, so some some really good ones on the way this weekend. Chris, wanted to uh, note the passing uh, of legendary Kentucky coach Joe B. Hall. He was 93 years old, got word last Saturday morning that, that he had passed away in Lexington, he won a championship in 1978 with with one of the great Kentucky teams. Uh, went to three Final Fours, lost in the championship game to UCLA in 1975 in what was the final game of John Wooden's career, that game out in San Diego. Uh, really had a great team in 84 when they uh, played Georgetown in the Final Four in the uh, infamous 3-for-33 game in Seattle. But uh, Coach Hall retired after the 84-85 season. And it was it was interesting to me to see his transformation, and, and I can remember well when he was coach. It was when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. Uh, he he was not the most popular figure in in the Commonwealth. In fact, he took lots and lots of criticism. Uh, he came after Adolph Rupp, who he played for. Uh, Rupp was not the biggest proponent of Joby Hall because I, I think he was probably bitter that, that he was basically forced to retire. Uh, but really, following a legend, Joby Hall did about as well as you can do. Uh, maybe could have won another championship or gotten to another Final Four, but he has some excellent teams. But the interesting part to me was that later in life, he became a beloved figure in that program. And, and one of the big reasons was that John Calipari really embraced him and, and wanted to make sure that that he was included 
And uh, I thought did a great job of that. But it, it was really interesting, and I think it was nice to see how the fan base really embraced Joe B. Hall over the years after he was coach. That's a great point, and it's it's extremely difficult to be the guy who replaces the guy. I remember talking to Coach Gene Barto about replacing John Wooden, and, you know, extremely difficult. Uh, the thing that people really don't understand about Joe B. Hall was what a pioneer he was. It's hard to believe, but even in the early 70s, the University of Kentucky under Adolph Rupp did not really uh, recruit uh, African-American players. And Joby Hall gets there. He immediately uh, signs black players, uh, in, including guys like Jack Gibbons and, and James Lee that helped him eventually win the 78 national championship. But he also hired a black assistant after his second year named Leonard Hamilton. Whatever happened uh, to that guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wonder. Uh, he, he He's 72 years old, and he looks like he's 50, and, and beat, just beat Duke last night. Right, so yep. I found this quote uh, in The Athletic, uh, and, and the person who said it w- w- wanted to be anonymous, but he said, Joe B. Hall did more for race relations in the state of Kentucky than anyone because of the way he handled his business. Uh, So he didn't act like it was a big deal that he signed African-American players. He just thought, you know, that's, that's how business is done. You, you have to go get the best players. And, and so uh, he didn't pat himself on the back for that. And, and he transformed that program. Now, eventually somebody would have, got with the program and decided that they needed to sign the best players regardless of color. Uh, but he did it and, and, and he transformed a, a program that after Adolph Rupp, you know, it, times were changing and the coaches had to get with it. Yeah, he was a. I think he was a catch-up salesman too. At one point over the course of his life, that that, that, that was always a, a part of his story. But uh, yeah, I, I saw him many times at uh, games I would cover, you know, at, at Kentucky or uh, maybe at the SEC tournament or other places. But the one time I really crossed paths with him, I, I was at the Chick Fil A at Greenwood Mall in Bowling Green, and I'm looking up at the menu and I hear a familiar voice order a combo meal, and I look over and it is none <laughs> other than Joe B. Hall. I was like, "What is he doing here?" Wow. But uh, that that was neat. But yeah, I, I, I have a, a, a Joe I, B. Hall encounter yeah, too. Yeah, I knew you had a story uh, to go with it. Yep. This is crazy. Um, Mideast Regional Final, uh, 1983. Oddly enough, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, where where they took it on the chin a few times in the old Stokely Athletic Center. Uh, they were playing Louisville, and this is nuts. They had not played Louisville in the regular season since 1922 and hadn't played them in the NCAA since 1959. They were calling it the dream game. And it, it lived up to its billing, 62 all, goes into overtime. And then Louisville, I'll never forget because I was sitting on press row behind Louisville's basket. Their guards looked like sharks on a feeding frenzy. <laughs> uh, Denny Crum throws out that press. Uh, they score the first 14 points and they win 80 to 68 to go to the final four, which that year was in Albuquerque. Uh, but I'm going to the to the press room and I feel somebody push me pretty hard to get out of their way. And I look at it's coach hall. Oh man. And, uh, I, I never said anything to him and I never held it against him. I, I figure if I'd have just got pounded 80 to 68 in overtime, uh, 
I probably would have pushed somebody out of my way. <laughs> That's an awesome story. I, I never knew in all these years I've known you, I never knew you were at that game because. Yeah, it was nuts, Kevin. I, I mean, it was nuts because the place only held a little over, well. Like 12,000 or so? 12,500, somewhere around there. It was bananas. Uh, and back in those days, the NCAA would give a credential to anybody, you know, yeah. and I, I was really kind of at a smaller paper and they let two of us from our paper come. And I just felt fortunate to be there because the senior sports editor at the paper I was working at could have claimed the only credential for himself. And I, I just could not believe the atmosphere and I'll never forget the look on those Louisville guards faces. They seriously, they, it looked like shark week, man. Uh, you know how great whites have that weird <laughs> yeah. black eyes. That's what these guys looked like, man. And they were just picking Kentucky apart, getting basket after basket. And, and that's one of those memories that sticks with you. I grew up in Kentucky. I lived in Louisville then. I was about 11 or 12 years old. And uh, I watched that game on, on a camping trip. Uh, we had brought a TV with us. And when wow. it got time for the game on that Saturday, we watched that that regional final but if you lived in Louisville at that time or lived anywhere in Kentucky, to me, that will always be the biggest game ever. Because, you know, like you described, they hadn't played in years. And, and you know, there's all yeah. this arguing about, you know, whether they should play in the regular season. You know, Louisville had come into its own. It won the championship in 80 and, and went to the Final Four in 82 and ended up going that year to the Final Four and won another championship in 86. And they argued forever. And I think it took an act of the legislature for them to finally play in the regular yeah. season. And Joby Hall was, was very much against them playing on, on a regular basis. But that game was so big. And uh, Jim Master hit a shot at the end of regulation to tie it, and they went to overtime. And I always wondered if, if a lot of Kentucky fans almost wished that Jim Master would have missed that shot because, as you described, when they got to overtime, Louisville put on that zone press, and it was over. Uh, they, they had, like, Lancaster Gordon and the McCray brothers and Milt Wagner and Charles Jones, you know, the, those players back then. And that was a great Louisville team that lost to Houston in, in a classic game the next game, the next weekend in Albuquerque. But that was such a huge game. And, and to this day... Anytime I see the score eighty to sixty eight on a scoreboard, my mind goes straight to that game. I'll tell you what, if 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 it was, I never got to go to a Led Zeppelin concert, <laughs> but if the decibel level was any louder than it was in Stokely that day, I'd be shocked. All right, Chris, we have uh, reached the uh, point in our podcast where we uh, give our book of Boba Fett recap, and, and this is just growing. You know, <laughs> it's growing as I mean, it's as big as the uh, the eighty three uh, Mid East Regional Final for sure. Uh, <laughs> our episode three recap. I, I, yep. I gotta say, I, I came away from that one not not feeling that good about where this series might be going. Now they they got plenty <laughs> of time to turn it around, but. Uh, Boba added the brat, the what I call the brat pack to his uh, yeah. to his repertoire of people. Uh, you had a low speed chase at the end of the episode where he chased down the mayor's assistant when, when Boba could have just hit the jets and, and you gotten the th- whole thing over with. Uh, the the Wookiee tried to knock off Boba Fett while he was sleeping. Uh, you had the Hut twins show up to apologize and drop off a new rancor. Uh, you know to go in the the pit down there at the the bottom of the of what's now Boba Fett's palace. So. Uh, they they got some explaining to do if you ask me after this episode. I I, I have many questions. <laughs> like the the young toughs that he recruited, the, they're, they're driving Vespas. Right. right. Yeah. And the, the the only thing I can think of is that my all time favorite movie, American Graffiti, 
was directed by none other than George Lucas. And one of the characters in there, the, the dork named Toad, drove a Vespa. <laughs> and I just wonder if, if, if this is the showrunner John Favreau's nod to George Lucas. I don't know. But, but it seems like he could have recruited uh, some other thugs. I mean, why not Black Chrysanthemum, the black Wookiee that uh-huh. drug him out of his back to bath? That's another question I have. Where's the security? Yeah, uh, you know those Gamorians are they falling asleep on the job or what? I I can't understand that. Another question: Why do they walk everywhere, dude? You're a crime boss. You you got speeders. You you got all kinds of things. You got that <laughs> potato masher spaceship of yours, and you're walking through the desert. Come on. And my other question is: Danny Trejo, what's up with that? Uh, turns out he and Rod, Robert Rodriguez who who directed this episode are longtime buds, but is the rancor given to him by, by the hut twins, some sort of Trojan horse. I, I am waiting to find out. So I've, I've read a lot of critiques of the episode. People were bombed, uh, disappointed, but I'm going to give John Favreau the benefit of the doubt and, and say that he is setting us up, uh, you know, Boba used to be a, a merciless bounty hunter, and now he's he's letting people that try to kill him, like the Black Wookiee, run away. Like, why don't you recruit that dude? He could be a good thug in your family. Uh, but but you know the character's changing, so I'm I'm willing to go with John Favreau. He has earned my trust with Mando. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's uh, there i've said it oh, man hey, you said it all man <laughs> when i see the rancor all i can hear is c-3po saying oh no the rancor uh but yeah i i, I think it, that that's setting up to to be something completely different from what it looked like yeah it, even I, I don't know if the rancor is like i said a trojan horse it could right. turn on him or he could be you know Forget about all the, the, the Vesper riding thugs and, and, and letting the Wookiee go free. Could be the best addition to that crime family you could ever have. Yeah, maybe so. I, I was pretty surprised when I saw Danny Trejo show up, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I know you texted me. Yeah, we'll see like, where things go wow. in, in episode four. Uh, and yeah. that is our Book of Boba Fett recap. We'll do that again next week, too. Chris, always a lot of fun. I love doing the podcast with you, and, and we'll talk to you next time. Same, buddy. Take care. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.